This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. Welcome to Resource Center. This is Audrey Raj. Now on the show today, we're going to be talking about common misconceptions regarding venture capital and startup investing. Uh, according to my guest today, the majority of folks in Malaysia have misconceptions around what startup investing entails and what investing in a VC fund entails. And if I'm going to be honest, I looked at his notes and despite speaking with entrepreneurs and investors for almost a decade now, I too had misconceptions about some of the things we're going to be discussing today. Joining me on the show is Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures. Indelible Ventures is a US-based fund with a mandate to invest in Malaysian startups to help them scale internationally. And you may remember Kevin from his show with me earlier this year when we discussed what VCs are looking for in 2020. So Kevin, welcome back to Resource Center. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I look forward to uh, a good conversation and hopefully inspire more people to get actively involved in the startup ecosystem as Malaysia certainly needs some more support so that we can take the rightful place at the top of the leader table. Nice. So Kevin, where do we begin with this? You know, um, what's your what's your biggest bugbear when it comes to these startup investing misconceptions? What gets your goat the most? <laughs> I, I, I guess the biggest one. And so, you know, I, I, I've been in Malaysia now for about six years. I launched my own fund last year. Um, and so one of the things that gets me the most, especially now that I'm pretty active in talking to people in the ecosystem and so forth, is that there seems to be an inherent pessimism as to whether or not Malaysia actually has a sufficient number of quality entrepreneurs and quality startups to invest in, mm. which is quite odd when me coming in as a foreigner are, is, mm. is singing greater praise than some of the folks that are, that, are, that are local to the ecosystem. But I do have to say, you know, I find really incredible entrepreneurs here in Malaysia that have a huge opportunity to become regional or global brands, just need... Uh, some of the support, financial support or a proper uh, value-add investor to help take them there. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I think that is something that most um, startup founders will also tell you. You know, sometimes it is easier to get the recognition abroad than it is um, locally. Because, you know, when people think, oh, it's a Malaysian company, you know, all of a sudden it's just not, not as cool. You know, like, the, like that X factor isn't there. You know, if it's an international brand, it's just better accepted than if it is made locally. But we have a lot of promising and good local startups, right? I, I, definitely, I definitely agree with that. I think when you look uh, around the region, you know, Singapore gets an outsized amount of venture capital. And there's a number of reasons associated with that um, in regards to being kind of a hub and a magnet for yeah. capital and talent. You know, aside from that, most of the venture capital ends up focusing on high population markets mm. as opposed to anything else. So you get a lot of uh, enthusiasm around a country like Indonesia just because you have this mass population. Mm. Um, you also see a lot of emphasis going towards Vietnam currently. Yeah. Malaysia oftentimes gets overlooked or gets treated as a we can handle it from Singapore sort of scenario. Mm. 
But to be honest with you, when you're talking about the very early stage companies, you need a strong ground game. You need people on the ground actually finding, sourcing, and being a value-add contributor to see them have long-term success. And I think that's one of the areas where Malaysia is lacking, and it's one of the, it's the main reason why I launched my own fund here in Malaysia at the end of last year to fill that fill that gap and help be a contributor to see more Malaysian companies be uh, international brands. Mm. Okay, Kevin, I know you have a list of misconceptions, <laughs> so let's just get to it. Let's start with time frame. Yeah, so I mean, in a lot of the conversations I've had with um, players in the ecosystem here, the, there's a misconception around the time frame. You know, investing in an early stage startup. So let's talk about the very early stage when you're raising your first first round, second round, those sort of areas where you're just you've turned a product, you turn an idea into product, you turn a product into revenue, and now you're trying to scale up. That sort of early stage. It's not reasonable to anticipate that you can actually get any sort of return on investment within a short time frame. And when I say short time frame, you know, three years is highly unlikely, five years is unlikely. You're really looking at something more along the lines of seven years. You know, for some companies, there's some statistics out there where there are VCs that have held companies for 12 years. Um, so when I when I reference these long time periods, there's a, there's a saying that lemons ripen fast. So your bad investments are going to go bad pretty quickly on. But when you have one of these outperforming investments, a lot of times you want to hold on to it because you see that pathway to a very large M&A transaction or uh, possibly an IPO. So some of these long time frames are associated with the high success cases. You will see exits shorter on, but they're not as likely and it's not as common. To compensate for the lack of liquidity, you get a much higher rate of return than you'll see in any other asset class out there. So if you did comparisons of, you know, real estate, public markets, uh, commodities, uh, private equity, venture capital, venture capital always sits on the top of the list as re in regards to the rate of return that you can generate. Mm. But it's important to know that there's a lot of characteristics besides just kind of a single one-off investment that plays into that. So you have the time frame there, you have an aspect of liquidity, but you also have to realize you to manage to get that rate of return, you have to manage the inherent risks that are associated with venture capital. And so this is where it comes into really two key aspects. One aspect of it is you need diversification in the number of startups that you invest in. So oftentimes I'll meet angel investors and not just here in Malaysia, but in, in you know, I've lived and worked in 20 plus countries. So it's, it's, it's a pretty global perspective on this. Um, a lot of angel investors will do one, two, maybe at most five investments and will not always see a lot of success come out of it because that is not a diversified portfolio. Oftentimes as well, they're sourcing those out of their immediate personal network, which has a selection bias associated with it as well. 
The benefit of having a professional fund manager is that that fund manager's sole job, duty, etc., is to go out and find, find, find. Their entire job is to go out and find more investments. So they're much more active. Generally speaking, angel investors are doing it as um, doing it. I don't want to use the word hobby, but they're doing it as a side job. They're doing it in their spare time, aside from their normal, you know, day job that they're that they have, which is oftentimes business owners, chief executives, you know, very highly successful people. So something to just pad up their retirement fund. Exactly. But don't oftentimes have the time to be able to fully commit Mm. to the value add associated with it, to the activity required in order to source it. When you start talking about being able to create a diversified portfolio, it really is a full-time job. When you look at any venture fund out there, it's oftentimes more than just a single individual. It's a staff of people that are tasked with going out and finding the best companies and then providing value to make sure that those companies succeed. Mm. Inevitably, there's a failure rate. You know, when you, when you look at venture as an asset class, especially in the early stage, different countries have different metrics, but generally it stays between 40 and 60% as a failure rate. When you go even earlier stage where some of the angel investments are, you might see a tick up to say 80% Ooh, um, wow. where, you know, if you're doing one or two, the odds of falling into that 80% failure rate or the 40 to 60% failure rate, they're high. not in your favor. <laughs> they're not in your favor. Um, so just like back of the envelope math sort of, sort of assumption is that you really ought to look at, uh, say, 20 companies in order to get diversification. Now, if you start talking about 20 companies, if you do 50K per deal, you know, that's 1 million in total investments. Mm. Most manager, most personal investment advisors would tell you, don't put more than 5% or at most 10% in risky investments so that you're guarding your own personal retirement account. Yeah. Mm. So if you if you take that perspective, you really need like 20 million in assets based upon a 5%. If, if 1 million is 5%, you need 20 million in assets. Um, so there is an aspect of, you know, wealth level, risk level, portfolio. A big limiting factor is, is exactly that. Do you have the capacity to create a diversified portfolio? Whereas if you look at going towards the fund route where you're hiring a a dedicated manager, the same way that you buy into a unit trust or a mutual fund or these sorts of managed products, you're coming in at a much smaller amount, but immediately getting the large diversification that comes with going with that type of investment. And so I think for folks that cannot get the level of diversification required, it likely makes a lot more sense to go with a professional manager where you can get the diversification, you can get the benefits of the better returns out of that. And if you have kind of a part-time willingness in order to provide value, most fund managers actively seek that out of the investors as well, to where you can still get some level of involvement and feel um, personally invested in the success of the individual companies underlying it. 
Kevin, it's already time for us to take a quick break for some messages. Uh, but when we come back, we'll go further down that list of yours. We are discussing common misconceptions regarding venture capital and startup investing with Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures. Don't go anywhere. Resource Center will be right back. BFM 89.9. Before Friday materializes, BFM 89.9. You are listening to Resource Center. This is Audrey Raj. Joining me on the show today is Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures. And we are talking about common misconceptions regarding venture capital and startup investing. Um, Kevin, where were we? Um, I think uh, we were about to discuss ownership. Do we have that right? Yeah, yeah. So this this is another area where I think that there is some misconceptions around, you know, there's this inherent aspect when investing in a company that you want to get the best deal. There's, there's always this aspect of when you see something that's attractive, you want to own the most amount of it that you possibly can. Mm, mm. But there's a downside of this. So if you're looking at a company that is going to follow the typical fundraising cycle and need to raise round after round after round, the logic of trying to take as much as possible can actually play against you. So even though you may be thinking that you're getting a deal, you could be putting your probability of success lower Mm. than otherwise. And I say this primarily because you need to be understanding of Later stage VCs along the pathway, when you start talking about seed and series A and the different uh, letters that go along with it as you go down, ownership of the founders, the team, the ones that are active in the operations, it matters. So if you start seeing that the pathway of their ownership collectively amongst them will end up risking going below majority share, it is off-putting to a large amount of investors. Mm-hmm. When you start getting into the much later stage, it matters a lot less. I mean, right. Anthony Tan, before putting Grab as an IPO, did not own more than 50% along with his co-founders. Mm-hmm. When you look at a lot of the big names, those founders are not at 50% plus. But when you start talking about A rounds and B rounds, and especially earlier than that, it matters a lot. And so if you take too big of a share, and let's say hypothetically that you only took 30%, but then in the next round, typically a seed round will go 15 to 20. So if we go on the high side of another 20% being gone, you could you very well have close to lost majority share before you've gone further enough, far enough in the investing cycles. So I think what makes more sense for an investor is to improve your odds by going contra to that logic and making sure that you're conscious of the pathway of ownership and the pathway of valuation. Sometimes you may need to average your ownership a step up by participating in the next round. Your valuation is a little bit higher than if you took it straight from the beginning, but you're improving the odds of success by improving the odds of the fundraising capability. Right. Okay, what's next on your list, Kevin? I think valuation is probably a pretty close relative of talking about the ownership. And I think the challenge here, and you you know, 
every founder wants to maximize the valuation. Every investor wants to minimize the valuation. The magic falls in trying to figure out somewhere in the middle. Mm. Yeah. But you do see oftentimes situations, especially when they're competitive, of where valuations get aggressively high. And so if a valuation is aggressively high, this can become a big weight on the back of the company because now they have to justify mm. increasing from that already lofty valuation to another lofty valuation. Because when, again, it's very important to understand that most VC fundraising is not a one and done. We have to be conscious of the pathway. And what matters is a lot of optics are associated with it. So if I'm coming in at a little bit of a later stage, I'll look back at the pathway of the valuation and I want to see a certain measure of growth in that valuation. Yeah. And as we all know, when you're investing in risky assets like venture, that pathway is not saying, hey, it grew by 10%. It's saying, hey, it grew by 200%, it grew by 300%. So if you're starting at too high of a number, you may be making it too difficult to raise your next round unless you're growing extremely rapidly and high, have a high level of confidence that you can grow faster, uh, as fast as is necessary. So I think that there's a there's a certain there's a big caution point that I would throw out on aggressively high valuations. Mm, you know, this is making me think of We Crashed. Have you watched that one, Kevin? I, I I listened to the podcast that was used to create the the actual series, but I, I I have not actually seen the actual series. I've heard I've heard Jared Leto does a phenomenal job. Of, and Anne Hathaway. Of Adam Newman. Yeah, 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 but that's something to watch, you know, and how they um, they struggle with valuation and then trying to prove and trying to um, actually get VCs to come in later on with that ridiculously high valuation. So, yeah, that's something to watch. Very interesting. One, one more comment on valuation is that if you do have too high of a valuation, you'll run the risk of in times like right now, I mean, Southeast Asia is more insulated. So I, I think the doom and gloom that's talking right now in the media on tech is, is we're, we're, we're reacting to it here. But the biggest problems are where the hype bubble was, was bigger in the US uh, and, and markets like that. When you see the really high valuations that we were seeing over in uh, Silicon Valley and some and, so, and some of the other hubs where like you're valuing a company on 200x revenue or something yeah. really high like that. When you go to raise your next round of funding, you're either going to be, you, you run the risk of having to go a flat round or you run the risk of having to do a down round. Mm. And so a down round means that you're raising at a valuation that is, that is lower, lower than yeah. your last valuation. So as a founder, you have to realize that most of the terms of investments have anti-dilution characteristics built into them to where when there is a down round, your prior investors are getting additional shares to compensate for the fact that you are raising at a lower valuation. In a lot of the rounds that are flat, you'll see that investors get really tough on adding really harsh terms to the agreements in order to justify 
that valuation because oftentimes a flat one is a kind of a compromise instead of going down and they compromise by adding a whole bunch of harsh terms on top of it. Um, so I think the, the big moral of it is keep a very realistic idea of what your valuation is. I know the incentive for a founder is to go as high as possible. I know the incentive of an investor is to go as low as possible. I've seen investors go really high as well. So I, I, I can't comment on what the logic behind that. But you can, you can injure your future prospects by going unreasonable. And the, the, I think that's a good transition to talk about some of the issues around uh, harsh terms as sure, well. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a number of terms that I've seen that I, I, I got to be honest with you. I just hate seeing harsh terms in there, especially at the early stage. Mm-hmm. When you're late stage and getting and a, and a more mature company, they oftentimes are understandable, a little bit more understandable at a later stage. They really should never exist, in my opinion, at an early stage. What and kind so, of terms are we talking about, Kevin? So let's let's say, for example, I've seen times where there's put options. A put option basically means that the investor can put back the shares and force the company to buy them back from them. Hmm. Now imagine if you're a later investor coming in after that investor with the put option, and you know that at any time that investor can can force money out of the company. Right. Would you invest in that company? Absolutely mm, not. No. I'm not going to come into a company and, and knowing that there's that there's a harsh term like that, a put option on it, knowing that my money that I put in can flow out of it and go to somebody else's hands and not go into growth. It's a big red flag for an investor. So if I see that, and most investors are the same, they'll immediately tell that company, you need to negotiate and get that waived or the fundraising basically will end right there. So any investor that's putting those types of that type of that particular type onto a term is really limiting the chance that that company can successfully fundraise again. It's 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 one of my biggest pet peeves. I, I've I've seen it a number of times. There's other restrictive terms that are in there in regards to you know ratchets. Ratchets are are another sort of thing that when you when you can't come to terms on evaluation, a ratchet is basically saying it's like an adjustment mechanism uh, based upon the next valuation. So if you don't hit the numbers it's an adjustment so that it can compensate the investor for not getting the growth uh, that was expected. There's, there's other ones like liquidation preference. You know, I could get into the whole legal aspect of it, but I think the, the point is that when you put harsh terms at an early stage, you have to understand that a company is going to fundraise again and again. Yeah. And the typical thing that happens is that you stack the preference. The newest money always puts themselves on the top of the stack because they're coming in with a greater amount of money. So they say, hey, I'm now first in line. Mm -hmm. And then the next investor comes in and says, I'm on top again. And there's very much of like a follow the leader sort of component when it comes to these sort of terms. Mm -hmm. If they already exist, the next investor says, okay, that's fine. They're already there, but I'm taking them too and I'm on top. 
So what starts from an aspect of an investor saying, hey, I'm going to put these terms to protect myself. By the time you've raised additional and additional, I am worse off now than if I would have never done it in the first place. Mm. So it's kind of counterintuitive, but I absolutely hate seeing some of these harsh terms. There's other ones like, I mean, it's a, it's a common thing here, but the redemption feature in shares, mm-hmm. everyone uses it here in Malaysia. I don't know a single other country that uses it. It's just Give me not more details, a, Kevin. So redemption is basically an exit feature that's, that says that at some future date, oftentimes it's say seven years or whatever, it essentially is intended to turn into like a debt obligation, similar to the way the put option is, but just much mm-hmm. further out in time. So where the company has to redeem and buy back the shares in lieu of some sort of exit. Right. And this isn't done anywhere else. I have never seen any other country that has used it. Long, long, long ago in the U.S., um, there did exist redemption features in it. But that's that's going back into uh, in VC terms, prehistoric times. (laughs) Okay, uh, we are uh, about to wrap up, Kevin, but if there are any other misconceptions that you'd like to address before we wrap up? Yeah, so I I think, in my opinion, there is not a strong enough involvement of uh, the community Mm -hmm. in venture capital. And when I say involvement of the community, you know, when you look at a lot of the statistics, the majority of the money that is in venture capital in Malaysia is government money, whether it's directly government related. If you look at the SC's information, I think it's like 40% is government, 30% is sovereign wealth. Mm -hmm. And so the vast majority of capital is coming from governments or government related entities. It's based upon those statistics. We need to get more of the high net worth individuals in Malaysia focused on it. If you look at any of the vibrant ecosystems globally, um, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in Europe, whether it's in India, China, you know, Singapore, Indonesia has a very strong involvement from their high net worth individuals. Here, We're starting to see that as well take place in Vietnam. We need more involvement of people investing in it as a key component of their personal portfolios. And I think the challenge here comes into two aspects. One aspect is you have some folks that will just go straight angel investing, which is perfectly fine. Most systems need a robust uh, variety of equity crowdfunding, venture uh, funds, etc., etc. But I think that there needs to be more capital uh, being unlocked from local sources because coming in as a foreigner, I can I can tell you 100% that most foreigners will look at uh, the ecosystem and say, if the locals aren't investing, why should I? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so we need to unlock some of it. And so there's a couple of there's a couple of components that I would say to that. One is the ability to invest in funds is a lot more straightforward than a lot of people think. It is really actually quite easy to invest in funds. I think some of it is people find the challenge of finding funds to invest in, which is a challenge because there's really not very many folks here in Malaysia uh, that are focusing on the Malaysian market. Um, But you can get in, uh, there's, there's some funds that have really low entry points. 
So some funds you can invest into for the same amount that you would do an angel investment. So say 100K, 500K, um, so on and so forth. The other aspect, because there's not a lot of funds here in Malaysia, is some folks have a hesitancy around quote-unquote new managers. Mm-hmm. Um, so new managers, in, in the terms of VC, we oftentimes call them emerging fund managers, which essentially means anybody that's on fund one, two, or three. If you look at the statistics globally, emerging managers, these folks that are on fund one, two, or three, generally outperform the legacy fund managers. Mm. And there's a number of reasons. I mean, part of it is, you know, these are, these are people that are start, just like a startup starting, a fund manager is starting their own fund management business. They're mm-hmm. hungry. They, they, they put in the work. Uh, I can tell you from, <laughs> from firsthand experience, it's a, it's a lot of work. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is not easy. Just the same with a startup. Uh, it, is, it is a lot of work. You also get different viewpoints. You get different networks. You get different connections. You have a lot of variety that associates with why they can end up getting these outsized performances. There was a recent study that was done by a German, a big German LP, that basically found when you look at the top tier performers, you have an outsized representation, a disproportionate representation of new fund managers because they have a tendency about performing. Oftentimes, you know, sourcing investments oftentimes ties down to perspectives, relationships, and so forth. We need more diversity. We need more new viewpoints. We need more new perspectives because we are addressing global, regional problems that sometimes sometimes the majority of people don't even realize are problems that need solutions. And so there needs to be that. So I think unlocking more local capital, it's easier to invest in funds than you think. New managers in in an area like Malaysia, where there is not an abundance of like legacy fund managers, new managers actually outperform. So don't write them off Um, and just keep at it. There's There's so much talent in Malaysia um, I've been saying it for a long time now, coming as an outsider, um, but there's, there's a lot of talent to unlock. We just need to unlock a little bit more capital to get them along their way. Right. Now, Kevin, I'm sure we haven't really exhausted the whole list of misconceptions uh, about startup investing. Uh, is there a place where you know entrepreneurs or, or those new to the startup game uh, or emerging fund managers, is there a place that they can go to better understand the do's and don'ts, you know, or, or maybe like a, a resource to understand the process and how best to go about it? How can we educate I mean, ourselves? I, I love having conversations with people. This is, this is the thing that this is the area that fascinates me most. So anybody can reach out to me via email. It's Kevin at indelible.vc. You can go on to my website, which is indelible.vc. You can find me on LinkedIn, Kevin Brockland. Um, you can find me on Twitter, KM Brockland. Um, just reach out always happy to talk about it Uh, and i'd love to set up more events in and around kl in and around other states of malaysia 
in order to address this. So always open to the, those types of opportunities because we need to unlock it if we're going to reach those five unicorn targets that have been set. We need to unlock more capital. We need to unlock more involvement. So Kevin at indelible.vc. Right. Looking forward to it, Kevin. Uh, and if you missed out on any part of this show, you can go look for the podcast on our website. That's bfm.my. You can also find all our podcasts on the BFM app that's available on the Apple App Store and on Google Play. I've been speaking with Kevin Brocklin from Indelible Ventures. My name is Audrey Raj and this has been Resource Centre on Enterprise BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.